thanks for listening to this sermon from Cedar Springs Church. We know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions. At Cedar Springs, we see you and we're with you. We also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper. In fact, we believe God created us for those deeper things and we want to help you discover them. We want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with God and with others. If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. Good morning, church. Good to be together. If you're new with us, my name is James Forsyth, and we're going to spend some time this morning in a Jesus story. Mark chapter 10, we're going to find Jesus encountering a rich young ruler, and we're going to see that the impact has on him, and it's going to make us wonder what impact Jesus has on us as we encounter him this morning. So let's go to God's word. Uh, let's continue in God's word. Mark 10, starting in verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Friends, this is the gospel of Christ. We do give you thanks for this gospel, dear Christ, and ask that as we encounter you this morning, uh, we would not go away sad, that we would not leave un unchanged, but that we might find good news, gospel news for our hearts and our lives this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Up on the screen is one of C.S. Lewis's uh, most famous quotes. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards, the rewards promised us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our mission as a church is to respond to God's love by following Jesus. We believe in a great God who has loved us greatly and now offers us a great life as we seek to follow him. We don't want to live. I don't want to live and I don't think you want to live a small life where we live as if and we teach our kids as if the best life has to offer can be found in education and family and success where we fool about with money and sex and ambition, neglecting the infinite joy that has been offered to us, where we fool about making mud pies in the slum because we can't imagine how great it would be to take a vacation at the sea. Instead, we don't want to live these shallow lives. We want to live deep lives. We want to be secure in God's love. We want to really know him and really know his love for us. And then we want to live our lives on on an adventure with him. And as we do that, as we become like him on that adventure, we want to receive, we want to inherit the staggering promises of the gospel that are offered to us both in this life we see in this text and in the life to come from this text. But friends, if we're going to do that, if we're not going to live small, dull, nominal, boring Christian lives, if we're actually going to respond to his love and follow Jesus, this passage shows us three things. First, there's a game we must not play. Second, there's a call that we must hear. And then third, there is a promise that he will keep. The game we must not play, the call that we must hear, and the promise that he will keep. You ready to see these three things in God's word together this morning? Let's start with point one. You see it there on the screen. The game we must not play. We're introduced to the player of this game in verse 17. Do you see him there in your text as he comes to Jesus? We don't know his name, but the Bible actually tells us quite a lot about him. First, we know that he's young. Matthew tells us that in in his account of this story. Commentators tell us that young in the Bible probably means 40 or under. So some of us, some of you are 40 or older and you still feel young. One preacher says that's sweet, but it's not biblical. Okay. (laughs) This man, he's he's a young man. He's in the prime of his life. And not only is he young, but he's also successful. Look at verse 22. We're told that he has great possessions. Successful, but also has, 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 has authority. Luke tells us in his gospel account that this man is a ruler. He's a person with authority in the community. So he's, he's rich and he's a ruler. He's a, he's a young, successful man. But we read more than that in our text, don't we? He's also earnest. He comes running to Jesus. He's also humble. When he gets to Jesus, he falls at his feet and speaks to him respectfully. He's also moral. He's done his best to keep the commandments all of his life. And he's also thoughtful. Don't you see that in his his question in verse 17? What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
This isn't a man who's caught up with the superficial things of day-to-day existence, whose whole soul focus in life is just to accumulate wealth, though he, though he is rich. This is a man who has his mind and his heart on eternal matters. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this guy, to me, um, he's basically the worst. Why? Because he's young and he's rich, and you can't even hate him for it, because he's earnest and he's humble and he's moral and he's thoughtful. Right? And no doubt this punk is good looking too, right? Just, you know. (laughs) But it might be his very goodness that leads him into the game we must not play. Do you see it there in verse 17? What does he come? What does he say as he comes to Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? His background and the phrasing of his question implies to us that he thinks he knows how this game works. As I've attacked the rest of my life with energy and vigor, now it's time for me to figure out what I must do to live happily ever after. But the Bible says that's not how this game works. The Bible says, you know, heaven is real. Heaven is a, is a real place and you can go there to live forever when you die, but you don't get in on the basis of the things that you have done. You don't get in on the basis of the things that you have done. Heaven, eternal life is a gift that can only be received by his grace. A gift that can only be received by his grace. Now, Jesus tries to direct the young man's attention to this in verse 19 by bringing up the commandments. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not, do not steal. Do you, do, do you really think you have been good enough to keep all of these things? Well, the young man replies, yeah, I've kept all of these things since, I was, since, my, since my youth. And so Jesus is gonna issue him one more challenge to help him realize that he's actually not as good as he thinks he is. More on that in a second. For now, the point is this. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Dear one, you must give up any hope that there is anything you can do to inherit eternal life. And you must cast yourself solely upon his mercy and solely upon his grace. Isn't this what Jesus says in verse 27? They ask him who can be saved. And he says, well, with man, it's impossible. And he uses this incredibly creative illustration. It's, a, it's, it's as possible as it is to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. But completely impossible. Completely impossible with man. But then what does he say? Not with God. For nothing is impossible with God. God has made a way. What must you do? There's nothing you can do. But what has he done? He has made a way. And friends, it is so important to me as your pastor that you know this truth deeply in your bones this morning. In fact, listen, if you, if you get this first point, you can go home after, okay? You don't even need to stick around for the rest of the sermon. It's so important to me that you know this truth. Why? Because you one day, you will die. And I will die. And and when that happens, we will have the opportunity to live forever in heaven. (laughs) And, And you need to know what to say when that moment comes. Not trusting upon anything you have done, but but casting yourself solely upon his mercy. 
Rosie and I have been thinking and praying for a couple of friends of ours who, um, who are really good people. They're good people. You know, they're young and successful and earnest and moral, and they actually are quite good looking too. Um, <laughs> but they don't know Jesus. And worse, they don't think they have any need of Jesus. And that, if that's you this morning, if you think on the scale of things, you're a pretty good person, do you know what? I'm not even arguing with you. On the scale of things, you probably are a pretty good person. It's just not a very good scale. Because the Bible says there's no one who's good. No one's really good apart, apart from God alone. And relying on yourself for salvation is the game you must not play. Because it is a game that you will lose. Does that mean there's no hope? Of course not. We've seen the hope. What must you do? Nothing. What has Jesus done? Everything. Cast yourself on his mercy and grace. Receive eternal life as his free gift. You know what? Give it to you today. Give it to you today. All you have to do is ask for it. Point one, the game we must not play. Point two, and this point particularly comes to Christians, comes to believers, is, is the call that we must hear. Okay, if you're not playing that game, if you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, then in this text, there's still, there's still a call that we must hear. It comes to us as Jesus has this discussion with, with our young man. You see it there beginning in, in verse 21. The young man comes to him and says, you know, that he's obeyed all of these commands. And Jesus responds and looks at him in love and says, okay, you lack one thing. You... You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then once you've done that, once you have sold everything you have and given it away, then you can come and follow me. Then you'll have treasure. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. What do you make of that verse? Christian, what do you make of that verse? It's definitely one of the hard sayings of Jesus, isn't it? Like, is he saying that to you this morning? If you want to be a Christian, do you need to run out right now, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then follow Jesus? I mean, that seems to be the plain reading of the text. Is, is, that, what you, is that what you should do? Here's my answer. Ready? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. How do I get to maybe? Well, let's remember the larger biblical context. The Bible tells us, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, that it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And certainly you could be rich and love money, but you could equally be middle class and love money, or you could equally be poor and love money. The, the root of evil isn't money itself. It's the love of money when money takes a place in our hearts that it ought not have. Further, consider the Bible's teaching specifically that's directed towards those who are rich. You could continue in 1 Timothy 6, for example, and, and read there, uh, the rich being, being, being warned uh, not to become haughty because of their riches, not to become prideful and look down on others because, you know, I'm better than them because I have more stuff. That passage also commands them not to put their hope in riches. Don't trust in riches. It's all ashes and dust. Don't think that this is going to be a thing that's going to sustain you for, for eternity. Along with that, the rich are commanded to be, to be rich in good works. Isn't that, isn't that great? Don't just be rich financially. Be rich 
relationally, <laughs> be, be rich sacrificially, be, be, be rich in the kind of life that you lead. And of course, they're told to be generous and ready to share. Now, back to the point. It wouldn't make sense to issue all this guidance to people who are rich if no one was meant to be rich in the first place. Money itself was never the issue. Love of it was. And the rich are taught how they ought to live as rich people precisely because it's not a sin to be rich. So don't get too hung up on the money thing. Here's the point. Here's the call that we must hear. If anything stands between you and Jesus, you've got to cut it out. If anything stands between you and Jesus, you have to cut that cancer out before it kills you. And if you think what he has to say about money is extreme, just wait till you hear what he says about our hands and our eyes. He doesn't even get started yet. And for the rich young ruler, it was his money. This was the thing that was getting in the way of his relationship with Jesus. And so this is why Jesus commands him to, to, to cut it out. And you know, that might be what it is for you. Too often I hear this passage spoken about and, well, you know, go give, sell all you have and, 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 and give to the poor. But don't worry, that doesn't, you don't really have to do that. You know? Well, well maybe you do. <laughs> because if... If money is the thing that's getting in the way of you and Jesus, then, then actually you do. You do need to cut it out. And do you know what, friends? I know people who've done that. I know people here in this church who are incredibly wealthy and you'd never know it because they live in very simple homes and they drive very mediocre cars and they've given all of their money to global mission. They have stored up treasure in orphanages. They've stored up treasure in hospitals. They've stored up treasure in the bellies of the poor. And do you know what? Their decision has made them happy. They felt, for me personally, not for everybody, but for me personally, this wealth is dangerous. It's not doing good things to my soul, so I'm going to give it away. I know other people who do the, the reverse tithe. You heard of this? So they don't give 10% and live on 90. They give away 90% and then they live on 10. They sensed there's something dangerous about these resources. They're not good for, for my soul. And so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut them out. I'm going to give them away. And again, do you know what? They're really happy. They're, they're really happy. And, and consider with me for a moment, as the wealthiest Christians in the history of the world, let's just consider whether money might be that thing for us. Let's not be too quick to say that it's not. Of course, if it's not, let's also not be too quick to, <laughs> let's not rejoice too quickly because that just means there's something else. That's all that means. Because all of us have things that we allow to get between us and Jesus. And so, yeah, for you, it might, it might be money, but it might be, it might be a relationship. <sighs> if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you find yourself dating someone who isn't a believer in Jesus Christ, and though you'd hoped that you would be an encouragement to them, you're actually finding that though they don't mean to, they're, they're dragging, they've been a discouragement to you. That your faith isn't flourishing and going like you, you hoped it would. Do you know that relationship? You might need to cut that out. Don't let that be the one thing you lack. Might not be money, might not be a relationship. For you, it might be a habit. Do you, do you wake up in the morning, pull out your phone and scroll? 
And then 30 minutes have gone by and you're in a little bit of a rush and you don't have time to, you don't have time, you don't, you don't have time to spend time with the Lord. See that scrolling habit? You might need to cut that out. And how stupid would I feel if, Jesus, if that's the thing that Jesus says, this one thing you lack? Like, what? Do the thing that will be for your joy. Cut these things out. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's not relationship. Maybe it's not a habit. Maybe it's something else in your life. We all need to just take an honest look at ourselves and consider what that might be. What might it be that I'm allowing to get in the way of me and Jesus? Because we want to cut that cancer out before it kills us. Don't you see, don't you see, dear ones, how this command comes to us in love? Do you see what you, look at the Bible. Jesus looking at him, loved him, and then said. Jesus didn't look at him and judge him and then say these things. Jesus didn't look at these things and like be frustrated with him and say all these. Jesus didn't look at him and roll his eyes and get, you know, want to give him the back of the hand and then say all of these. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And because Jesus loved him, because Jesus wouldn't let anything, even death on a cross, get between him and you, he longs for you not to let anything get in between you and his love. The call we need to hear. If there's something in your life that's getting in the way of Jesus, cut it out. How do we obey that call? Point three. We obey that call. We we embody that teaching by hearing the promise that he will keep. This, This third point is why this passage is a gospel passage, a good news passage, and why this sermon is a gospel sermon and a good news sermon. Okay, this is this is the motivation Jesus gives us to live this way. The promise he will keep. So in verse 28, Peter comes to Jesus. And remember from last week, when Peter comes to Jesus, we don't know what he's gonna say. But this time, he has words that kind of convey a beautiful weight where he says, Jesus, have we not left everything to follow you? He's hearing these teachings about the the radical call of discipleship, and and he wonders, have have we done that? And so he he asks, have we not left everything to follow you? And isn't it tender how Jesus Jesus doesn't say no. Jesus doesn't tell him, no, you've not left enough. You need to do more. No, Jesus doesn't have a rebuke for him. He has a promise for him. You see it here in verse 29. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one. You you with me in this word? There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. A hundredfold when? Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Mum and dad, I hope these words are as sweet to you as they are to me. Because here's what Jesus is saying. Whatever you leave for him, whatever you give up for Jesus, you will not fail to receive a hundredfold in return. And it's not stupid health and wealth. Follow Jesus and you'll be rich and and happy. Don't you love that he throws in, yeah, with persecutions? (laughs) So like, yeah, life life might also be hard. And we know that as Christians. And Jesus warns us about that as Christians. And I love that he does that because it it gives us a little bit of resilience 
um, teens, if your friends think you're weird for following Jesus, don't be surprised that that happens. And don't be too upset by it too. Jesus warned that in life, trouble, trouble will come. And so, so we're ready for that. But even within that, they would still expect to receive blessings when? In this time and then eternal life to come. If you follow Jesus, you will gain so much more in return. If you hear the call to cut it out, you will receive so much more in return. And friends, on that, do you know what? The first thing <laughs> I think of myself, are you not, dear church, are you not the fulfillment of that promise to me? Do I not have a home here with you? Do I not have more brothers and sisters? I don't even know what to do with all my brothers and sisters here. Seniors, have you not been a mother and a father to me? And a grandmother and a granddad to my kids? Whatever you give up for Jesus, you get more in return. I think of a college student who I, who I just love. She came to faith in the last couple of years through the faithful, patient witness of a friend. If you're sharing the gospel with a friend, hang in. They might, they might come to faith. This girl did. She came to faith through her friend and a, and a campus ministry. And now her life is completely different. Her life is completely different. Now she's, she's following Jesus and finding great joy in him. And this summer, she's actually going to India to, to participate in God's global mission. The only problem is her parents aren't happy about it. Her parents are nominal Christians, which means cultural Christians, which means they're not Christians. And they think that her life in Christ, um, it's kind of like being part of a cult. And can we be kind and say that we get that? You know, here you have a normal high achieving child and they come home and tell you that they're going to give their life and go to India. You're like, I'm not sure this was my plan, right? So I don't want to be too, too hard on them, but she is having to raise all her support without parental support. So what's happening? Her new church family is stepping up. And brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers are praying and giving and encouraging to make up for what she lacks. She thinks it's incredible. She can't really get her head around it. I think it's just the fulfillment of this promise from Christ. And if you want to give to her, let me know, because I want to overwhelm her with support. Whatever you give up, you'll get more in return. Or I think of Miss Robinson a preacher friend tells about Miss Robinson. She was a fifth grade teacher and she was a good teacher. She tried to love all of the kids the same. But you know how hard that is? That's hard to do with your own kids, let alone when you're a teacher. And there was this one kid in her class. His name was Teddy. And if we're honest, she just, she just didn't like him. He always showed up late. Uh, he was always unresponsive. He was always, you know, untidily dressed. He always slept through, through her class and she just didn't like him. And she found herself treating him with disdain. She didn't want to, but she did. Now, of course, she should have known better. And if she'd read the school records, she would have known better. She'd have read Teddy's first grade teacher say that, that, that Teddy is, is a bright and eager learner. But then she'd have read the second grade teacher say, Teddy is becoming a little withdrawn. His, his mother is sick. 
Then the third grade teacher writes that, that Teddy is really struggling because his mother died this year. And then his fourth grade teacher writes that Teddy has become a social misfit. The father has abandoned the family. He's living with an uncle and aunt. He needs professional help. Well, here he is in fifth grade and the turning point comes one Christmas. All the kids bring their gifts in for Miss Robinson in the nicely wrapped department store bags. And here comes Teddy with a sandwich bag. Tempted to roll her eyes, she takes it from his hands, opens it up and finds a kind of gaudy rhinestone bracelet and a half-used bottle of cheap perfume. All the kids laugh, but she's wise enough to know these things once belonged to Teddy's mother. And so she puts on that bracelet and she dabs on that perfume and Teddy says, Miss Robinson, you smell so good. You smell so good. And from that moment on, she decided, I'm going to do whatever I can to help this kid succeed. And the semester ended and the new semester began and she, she did. She spent extra time with him after, after class. She spent time to, to gather clothes that, that, that he needed. She spent some of her own money to make sure that he had, had food to, to eat. And she poured into this kid and he responded. He flourished and he grew because finally someone loved him. Finally, someone was, was paying attention to him. Well, fifth grade ended, off Teddy went. But years later, the letters started to come. The first one, Miss Robinson, just thought you should know. It was harder than I thought, but I just graduated high school. Second in the class, love Teddy. Four years on, another letter arrives. Miss Robinson, just thought you should know. It was even harder than high school, but I just graduated college. First in the class, love Teddy. Several years later, a third letter, years later, a third letter comes. Miss Robinson, thought you should know. You, you can call me Dr. Teddy now. And I'm getting married July 27, and you must come because I want you to sit in the front row in place of my mom. Now tell me, all the things she gave up for this kid, did she not receive a hundredfold in the kingdom of God? Anything that she gave up for, for him, did she not receive so much more in return? And friends, that's the big life we get to live. Don't doubt that Jesus will do that for you. And don't doubt that you can be the means through which that promise comes true for others. This is the gospel life. And so we take some time today to consider Hmm. Am I playing the right game? Am I depending on, on mercy and grace? To consider, is there something in my life that God is calling me to give up for him? If there is, do it and just see if he doesn't keep this promise and provide so much more in return. There's a game we must not play. There's a call that we must hear. And there's a promise, friends, he will keep. Amen. Father, we are thankful for the, just the reality check that comes in your word. 
The reality check that we must not depend on ourselves and our own goodness, but must cast ourselves on grace. The reality check that we must not allow things to get between us and you, but must cut them out. And the reality check, Lord, that we can do all of these things because you have promised good things for us in this life and the life to come. And so, Lord, whatever we give up for you, we'll gain more in return. Would this gospel shape our lives and that we might live differently in light of it, we pray in his name. Amen.